You're listening to an Artache podcast. It's always a delight to see the love affair between an artist and their medium, and it's a thrill to catch it in its infancy and watch it grow. Looking at Emma Bass's latest series in comparison to her previous, it's impossible to ignore the sharp right turn the artist has taken from her visual arc. Emma Bass is an established photographer with a global audience. Her 2016 work, Hydrangea's 8.50am, presented at the Royal Academy Summer Show and is typical of her photographic style, decorative and seductive floral compositions in collectible vases. In this latest series, Bass is layering her bouquets rather than arranging them, replacing the flowers with symbolic objects and paying homage to the artist whose practices have guided her through her own creative journey. These new works are surface-aware and have an acutely tactile finish. 17th-century Dutch flower paintings provide the visual backdrop, becoming the canvas upon which she lays her pollen. Local and exotic insects, objects of intrigue, and gilded gold-leaf Matisse cutouts, which bring the work to life with a buzz. You started out as a nurse. How did your creative journey begin? Well, I was I was born in Africa. I went back to England. My parents are both English. Mm-hmm. So I started out, my formative life was first two years in Africa, which is probably why I like colour so much, mm. and African music. And um, then uh, we came out to New Zealand uh, because my father wanted to come here for work. Mm. And we got stuck, which was a happy accident for... Um, we got stuck forever, which is pretty good. Not a bad place to get stuck. And your father's a cardiologist, is he? Yeah, well, he came here to try and study um, at Greenland Hospital, which is then the one of the best places in the world to study and specialise in hearts, which is what he did. Yeah. So I grew up around hospitals and hearts, and, you know, that was a familiar environment for me. So I guess, Around hospitals and hearts? Yeah, yeah he used to take <laughs> me in. He used to take me in to show me all the all the different hearts they had in, in, what? Really? in the lab. So like real hearts? Yeah, and formulin. So I remember smelling formulin at the age of... Eight and um, I'm surprised you haven't created more. Yeah, no, like, it's sitting in the back of my sitting in the yeah. back of my head. It's, it's going to emerge at some point. Start preserving will the definitely um, be making. Yeah, definitely. And I used to when I was a nurse, I worked in a cardio cardiothoracic intensive care unit also. So I've had quite a lot to do with hearts during my lifetime. But when I was ten, he used to force me to go into the hospitals to um, paint on the windows of the um, coronary care unit. It was something that he would make me do every year, which I initially. Um, of course, being a young 10-year-old girl would have huge um, resistance too. Um, but then I, um, it was really interesting noting the huge joy that it brought people just to make something visually beautiful on the walls to create something. And of course, I was planting flowers and yeah. plants and decorations, and that was every Christmas. So that's kind of when it all started, really, that, yeah. the whole kind of wanting to put beauty out there into the world, which is a bit of an underlying philosophy of what I do now. So I went, so then I went, um, decided to become a nurse because I wanted a practical element to whatever I chose to do. I was brought up by a single mother, so I was really determined to be quite independent and Mm -hmm. to make it, um, you know, find a trade that I could practically um, fall back on. And I'd always, all through my upbringing, I'd had a lot of 
creative people around me. We had we knew a lot of artists and people who had big art collections. So I was quite aware of you know New Zealand art and international art. When I was 19, I went off to New York and spent all my time in the MoMA, which I adored. Mm. Um, but I ended up in London after qualifying as a nurse, and I've always had this streak of loving photography and seeing the world through a bit of a lens. And when I was in London, I did a course at the Camera Club in Leicester Square. And so when I wasn't nursing, I was roaming around the streets of London and Europe, taking images on my camera. And I found a specialist in the hospital who gave me his key. I was very lucky to get that. Yeah. So I spent every minute that I had spared just taking photographs and and um, mostly black and white reportage, sometimes a lot of abstraction. So he gave you a key to his dark room? Yeah, so I got oh. this completely unlimited access, That's which awesome. was incredible. And um, yeah, so I kind of did all that for a couple of years and then I wanted to explore it further and came back to New Zealand and, um, and decided to go and study. And it was either Elam or um, Elam, or I chose to go down a more technical route. Yeah. When I came back, I actually did a summer school at, at Elam with Anne Noble, yep. who's a wonderful photographer, and I absolutely adored it. But I also realised I had to learn, um, I wanted to really learn some more technical aspects of it. Yeah. So that's why I chose to go to Unitech. Mm -hmm. And we did have a lot of um, artists who came in and talked to us, so we got influenced by people like... Fiona Partington came in, and we had, I think, Lawrence Eberhard came in. Um, yeah, there were many. Deb Smith. Yeah, Deb Patrick Smith. Patrick Reynolds, Megan Jenkinson. Yeah, and it was really great to get exposed to all that they were doing. So there was always a very creative element to learning the practical skills. Um, and then I just decided to embark on trying to um, do editorial. I just took a, a risk, and I took a portfolio around all the magazines. And my first job was, amazingly, a listener cover. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, I'd shown all my work that was quite, um, <laughs> you wouldn't expect to see in magazines. Like, I photographed, um, I projected uh, old decaying metal onto human naked bodies. And that's the sort of work I was showing yeah. um, people. I mean, when I was, I remember when I was back at um, Unitech, I did it, we had to do a documentary assignment and... I chose to do the embalming process, and I managed to get access into a um, wow, that's interesting into a morgue, and I photographed. I was just very interested in the whole um, taboo subject of death, and yeah. I wanted to create a series of images that were powerful and made people um, be confronted with this whole idea of of death. And half of the people in the class just couldn't actually look at them, which I found very interesting. Oh wow, really? That's interesting. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so you went round and showed showed your portfolio um, to editors, essentially, and started doing portraits of people, mainly. Yeah, and I, I think it, um, I ended up photographing a lot of people uh, for magazines, and I think that was because I developed skills to make people feel comfortable when they were confronted with a camera, because I think anybody, when they have a camera, um, pointed at them instantly freezes up and doesn't quite know what to do, yeah. myself included. But I think the skills that I'd learned as a nurse enabled me to relax people, but also I had the skill of being able to very quickly compose within a frame um, at the same time. So I could very quickly create an image that was strong enough for a magazine cover or a double page spread. Yeah. And it was something I really did enjoy doing. It was like a, a thrill of a moment of the, the challenge of having to capture somebody and have that multitasking element that you could also simultaneously 
create a, um, a pleasing, harmonious, strong image. For any listeners who haven't seen Emma's earlier portrait photography, it's it's quite theatrical and quite um, stylized and quite stunning. So, um, what prompted the move? How did the move from you know editorial portraits with humans to flowers? How did that happen? Well, I'd, I'd been doing it for um, about twenty years, and I, I'd always knew that there was something within me that I needed to fulfil. That was you know something a bit deeper and had more meaning. Um, than magazines that kind of throw away and um, I, it, was, it was a happy accident where I was actually photographing a cover of a magazine and um, it was at my home which I often use as a studio and we had a white background and we just needed to fill in a little space to make it interesting and we had a very short amount of time so I raced up the road I knew there was a, a magnolia tree up the road and I just raced out very quickly and grabbed a few branches um, of flowers but they were very damaged because there'd been a hailstorm Yeah. and I also got some blossoms from down the end of the garden but I threw them all together in a crownland vase that I had and they looked really beautiful but I knew that they'd be out of focus so it didn't really matter that they were all damaged and falling apart and on the, you know, yeah. on the decline and um, we, we quickly did it, it was all very successful and, every, and then everybody left and um, there was this amazing light that was that was sitting in the, the stairwell of my front door. And we have a stucco art deco house next door. And there was this incredible shaft of light that was just bouncing off that wall. And then it was bouncing onto the flowers. It had this exquisite uh, natural light. So I just felt compelled to record it on my camera. So I took this photograph. And it was very pleasing and lovely. And I showed my neighbour. And she said, I love it. Yeah. I want a massive one for my wall. To which I said, but it's not perfect because it was covered in black speckles. And yeah. She said, but that's why I love it, because it's not perfect. I want to see this photo too. Yeah, well, actually, a... I was looking at it at a friend's place the other day. I gifted it to her and she had it on her wall. It was really lovely to see it again. Yeah. It's quite naive when I look at it compared to what I'm doing now. It yeah. feels like a very simplistic work. But um, it was, it was, so it just started me down this whole trajectory of actually trying to find imperfect things and then I started exploring the whole concept and philosophy of um, wabi-sabi which is a yep. Japanese philosophy originating from Buddhist um, origins all about impermanence and imperfection being beautiful and I think people really responded to that because it was comforting it was reassuring you know mm. we can and it's also you know symbolic of our lives you know we're all demising we're all going to die at some point and having been a nurse I'd also witnessed that death can be very beautiful mm. it's tragic but there's also there can be a huge beauty in it and it's extremely meaningful. Yeah there's something very beautiful about about the uh, mindfulness that's involved when you do actually take time to look at flowers and plants and things around you and I suppose that whole process would have been um, very enjoyable as well just going around the neighborhood and collecting flowers. And yeah well, I became the queen of foraging. <laughs> I considered myself the Robin Hood of flowers. <laughs> <laughs> you take the I'm ones that nobody else wants and then make them into the beauties. That everybody can appreciate. Yeah, yeah. Well, that began, well, is that where you yeah, perfect? That's where it kind of started. And I started exhibiting them and they were really, people seemed to want them on their walls, which was, was wonderful. Yeah. And I ended up um, getting them into hospitals and hospices as well. So I was able to carry on kind of being present in a hospital without having to, you know, yeah. do 
do the your echo remained. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. And really, and what happened then was I got one amazingly accepted into the summer exhibition of the Royal Academy, and um, I I decided to go over for a week. And so while I was there, there was an exhibition at the National Gallery on Dutch flower paintings. Yeah. Which I made sure I went to, and then I just returned to again and again over about four days. And um, I was just blown away by these incredible um, paintings, uh, just the extraordinary detail. I fell in love with them and, and I started trying to collect books on Dutch flowers yeah. um, from all around the world. And I found that there was quite a shortage. I couldn't really find, there was a limit to how many different publications there actually are. Okay. So um, yeah, I, got, I, I was trying to get as much information, but then I decided to do a new body of work called Embellish, which had the same kind of mood and tone of the Dutch flowers. And that was really exploring the idea of beauty um, with the illusion of beauty. Yeah. Um, so here I started, um, because a lot, because of course the Dutch flowers were illusory, they were illusions, the bouquets were impossible. So they were illusions within themselves. But I was interested in, um, I started painting the flowers and I started combining fake flowers, artificial flowers with real flowers so you couldn't tell what was real and what wasn't. And I guess I got all caught up with the, you know, how we live in such an illusion within our lives. Um, and you know, these images from the Embellished series really were metaphors for lots of things, like they're for our bodies. Mm. You know, you don't often, with women and their appearances, you don't know what's real and what isn't. It mm. was about, you know, the world, what's real and what isn't, the news, what's mm. fake and what's real. So it was kind of like thinking, um, you know, it was concentrating on that, really. Mm. So your latest body of work blurs the boundaries between painting, photography and collage, and you've stopped using a centralised item a vase with flowers sitting mm. upon a ledge and instead you've got your Dutch your inspiration uh, inspirational Dutch and do uh, you may have Flemish I'm not sure of the 17th mm -hmm. century um, paintings that's become your backdrop so you've printed out and um, and put things upon the surface of that um, paying homage really to the artists whose practice has has guided you through your creative journey this is quite a change of approach for you mm. one prompted this? It's definitely, um, <clears throat> you know, previously I've just been doing purely photographic um, bodies of work and this has changed and that I'm now becoming a little bit more, um, I've developed the whole process of what I'm doing. And what I did was I, um, I, you know, and this new body of work has really got the same elements of, of the imperfect and the embellished. I'm bringing all that forward. But um, I think it's just being a woman in my, you know, I'm now in my 50s, I'm at a different phase in my life. My children are getting older. Um, I'm starting to reclaim my space again. Um, you know, I've been through all the ups and downs that you, you go through. Um, <laughs> and I'm just getting a little bit more sure of, of who I am. And um, I am happiest when I'm creating. That's mm. when I'm in my happiest state. So. Um, yeah, and I'm really, um, one of the things, the reason I brought Matisse into this work was because he was somebody who kept going within his 80s when he was at the end of his life and he couldn't actually paint. That's when he started his Matisse cutouts. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I'm, and it gets me excited. I think, wow, there's so much more to cover and I don't want to waste any time. Yes, it's interesting with the, um, in the context of Albert, Alberton, the, um, Matisse cutouts that um, you've done over the top of your um, reproduced 
um, that I've gilded on top yeah, of it. Yeah, they've gilded them on, on top, and so when you walk through the space, they really jump out at you in a completely different way, and it's so um, against the backdrop of that house and all of the slightly faded or oversaturated kind of time-weathered um, wallpapers and everything has got that feel to it and then you suddenly have this thing jump out the corner of your eye it's kind of really uh, mm. makes the work very dynamic when you're well it definitely comes alive and it, they shimmer they really do mm. shimmer with the um, change of vantage points. really notice it in that space because there's a lot of it's very different to being in a white cube I mean I showed them an artist gallery and they looked incredible there and probably a lot more contemporary there yeah yeah and they are contemporary yeah I mean course. they are contemporary but um, you know at first glance they look decorative and like you know it's old-fashioned sort of the old yeah. style but actually when you get in close you see it's, it's not like that at all oh there's all sorts of little things in there little symbols and all but it's an entirely different context um Alberton House is, is and it feels kind of fitting yeah they, they fit and it really perfectly. it really changes the space as well it's mm. a great experience just as, as not just as seeing work on a wall but just to actually be in that space mm. and experience those works in that space because it they uh, have a very nice dialogue between them. And of course, that, that um, context of the grand ballroom is more in keeping with the time frame. It's closer to the time frame of the Dutch um, you know, flower period of the 17th century. So talking about the gaze, looking at the human gaze, it's a critical part of any art form, and you obviously know a lot about the language of flowers and their correlation to beauty. What's your theory around why we find flowers so delightful? <laughs> well, I mean, historically, flowers have absolutely, you know, been represented thousands of years, going right back to the Egyptians and their burials and the Greeks and Romans and their wreaths and the Japanese with their offerings to the, you know, gods. They're universal symbols of beauty in both the East and the West. Um, they're tokens of love and they're used in all the rituals. Am I correct in thinking traditionally that flowers are given to females by males or does history tell a different story? Do you have a, you, well, you, you, what are your insights around that? Definitely there's a tradition of males giving women physical flowers um, and I mean certainly I know that people who um, buy my flowers are usually women which is um, it's just nice to think that women are pleasuring themselves. Um, flowers are definitely metaphors for life and you know there are a lot of philosophers in the 17th and the to the 19th century people like Kant and Hegel, they compared women to flowers, you know, their beauty and their fragility. So unfair. And their supposed um, inferior... And so the, unfair. And their supposed so, oh, you're faded, you're not in bloom anymore, you're not beautiful, I hate that analogy. And, and yeah. not as, not as, um, and they were more intellectually inferior, or well, that's how they were kind of viewed back in those days, apparently. Mm. But, um, you know, women were often associated with a flower, but it was always their their involvement with with botany was usually through a more engendered um, activity such as needlework or art. Yeah. What about? There's been quite a lot of uh, there's a lot of artists that work with flowers as well, isn't there? Oh yeah. You think of Maplethorpe and his yeah. very sexual. Um, beautiful calla lilies and then you've got Georgia O'Keeffe with her exquisite orchids and um, very vaginal lilies. Yeah. Interesting. It's not easy surviving as an artist these days. Do you have any tips for emerging artists on how better to survive in the art world? Well, I think that the um, 
the environment's definitely changing. Uh, I think that you know galleries are really important, um, but I think that there is now gradually becoming more of an online presence. And I certainly saw that overseas when I went to London. I've been there back the last several years, and there's definitely more of an online thing happening. And it seemed that we were a little bit further behind here, but I think <clears throat> it's about trying to be again bold and just. Um, you know, creating an audience for yourself, which is kind of hard because I think a lot of artists are very reclusive and very um, find it very hard to put themselves out there. It's a really scary thing to do. Mm. So I've really tried hard to get a bit of an audience. I use Instagram. Um, I think you have to be, you know, have some good PR skills and try and, you know, network and make good connections. But it's interesting also because I think in New Zealand we certainly do have a bit of a slightly, you know, if you're putting yourself out there, it's not very cool to put yourself out there. Like, What are your thoughts on that, Amy? Well, yeah, it, it, traditionally it has been like that, and it's been interesting watching this sort of um, mixing of waters when it comes to the rise of social media uh, and people doing just that, and that's what it's all about, versus prior to that when it wasn't okay to stand on a pedestal and say, look at what I've done. Um, so I think that is changing, but... Um, but there has definitely, but you definitely have to um, optimize relationships Absolutely. anywhere you are, and you have to be very brave, and you've got to hustle, and I think that's hard for a lot of people. I find it hard, but I'm, I, I hustle. Well, I do too. It's yeah, just... it's hard, and it, but every successful artist I know does exactly that. Everything that, that there's some key things that every single successful artist in this country that I have interviewed or discussed things with do the same the same key things and that one of those is they they are there they're they they're, they're hustling they're known they're at the openings they're seen they're they market themselves they network you know it's 50 percent of anything they do if, if, if you haven't created some sort of audience for it that may be interested then you've got to question the point of doing anything in the first place mm. so I, I think it's very very hard for artists and i think also it's um it's like if nobody knows about it and they haven't seen it, then what's the point? You know, I mean, how, yeah. how can you expect to sell your art if nobody's really seen it? And in one way to get people to understand or be interested in your art is to tell them your story. And, and mm. yeah, you've got to... I just, I just think it's so hard for artists. Mm. And I think I think they not, not all artists should have to hustle, but, you know, so that's what dealers can do. They can be that, that in-between, but... Again, all the really successful artists do. Mm. They mm. do. They force themselves to. They have the ability to. They may not be socially brilliant, but they still do. Mm. They they do it. It's the recluse artist is rare, but they're 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 out there. Mm. Absolutely. But there's definitely more potency if you've got the artist standing behind you know, talking about their work directly. I think. I think maybe my intention has always been to try and put beauty into the world my intention is just to try and share so that's mm. kind of where my where i come from alberton was famous in the 19th century for its gatherings hunts garden parties and music alberton was the party house for auckland's colonial elite it also has a reputation for paranormal activity Emma, what was it like installing your work there? Did you notice anything strange going on? <laughs> well, I can't say that I saw a ghost, but I did see, you certainly feel a sense of the historical kind of um, essence of the house when you walk in. I was, 
it's definitely steeped in, in history and you could certainly have that, I felt the energy of that. Yeah, I, items and, do definitely have a lot of baggage in that respect when you go in. And there's a number of my vases in a little installation that I've created and of course, you know, when you put the lights out they looked a little ghostly. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I heard a story that apparently, because Albert and a lot, quite a few weddings happened there and um, apparently a bride got scared out of one of the upstairs rooms where she was getting ready by the sisters. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And while I was looking at the work, I saw in the reflection of one of the Matisse shapes, I swear I saw this three young ladies just standing there. One had a knife in her hand and there was blood dripping off it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'd be really interested to hear from anybody else who's had any strange ghostly experience there. Would you, do you think maybe you could do a seance set? No, don't. I would actually be too scared to go if you did a seance because I think it would, I just, I, I get sometimes I get, that is one place you definitely would feel a bit scared about doing a seance at. Absolutely. It's interesting. Anyway. So your vase collection currently on display at Alberton is, is magnificent and it's only a, about a quarter of your entire collection. Um, many vases feature in your photography. Mm -hmm. What, what, when did you begin your vase collection and how do you decide what vase to use with create, when you create a work? Um, well I started collecting them when I really started doing flowers which is about eight to ten years ago. I can't remember now the years blur um, and really I've collected them from all around the world on eBay usually um, it's become quite an obsession and I, I'm just determined to get as many different ones as I possibly can um, and sometimes the vase determines what the outcome will be and sometimes the flowers will and sometimes I find a really unique vase but I'll sit on it for a long time until I can see find the right thing you've got it. you've got a collection of duff Delft vases there. Yeah, isn't yeah, I've got a, a little collection of beautiful blue and white ones that they had in, in Holland back in those times, and they're a lot older. And um, one thing that I did find is that there were quite a few casualties because I work within my domestic environment and I have children, so quite a few of them have <laughs> slightly yeah. had a um, cataclys cataclysmic end yeah. but what I have discovered is the um, wonderful art of kintsugi yeah. which is Jap Japanese based where you repair something with gold a gold lacquer gold glue which makes them supposedly more beautiful than they were yeah. which again ties into what I started doing yeah. with the wabi-sabi yeah. you know the imperfect stuff and also vases are metaphorically you know they are vessels we are yeah. made up of vessels yeah. and and they're quite womanly you know a woman can be seen as a vessel we carry children and they're um, carrying a whole lot of um you know uh, uh sexual organs for a plant well they are there's lots of ways you can view it so these new works are surface aware and have an acutely tactile finish can you tell me more about these objects within your works and how they come about well, it's kind of an extension of what the, the Dutch flower painters were doing anyway, which was they often painted lots of little creatures lurking around. Um, and so I added more, and um, my son has a lovely collection of plastic animals, and they would sometimes just migrate into whatever I was doing, and I'd just kind of leave it. He would just walk by sometimes and just put it in there, and I'd just leave it there. So it's kind of, it's slightly humorous, um, but it's just an extension of what was going on anyway. And it's a little bit of a an unexpected twist, I guess, because I put things in there like little cats and gorillas and yeah. um, things you wouldn't normally expect to find in there. Yeah, it creates a bit of irony and humour in places. Mm. Without giving too much away, how do you go about creating these works from a more of a process perspective? 
Well, I've gone and collected a publication, which again is, the, is, is, is an interesting, just that is a process in itself. And then I choose a, a, an image um, that is good enough to re-photograph. And I re-photograph it onto my high-res camera. But when, what I do is I lay things onto the actual um, image before I photograph it. And I bring more things in um, digitally. Then I Photoshop in the um, Matisse cutouts and I try and make a harmonious arrangement including those and then I finally um, gild, get them printed up large and then I gild it finally with the 24 karat gold onto the surface. Yeah. So it's a layering and a layering and a layering yeah. and it's an appropriation of other imageries and yeah. sometimes it's almost like this little smorgasbord of art history you know I've gone yeah. back to the 17th century with the Dutch flowers and I've gone back go, gone through to Matisse and then brought it through to the present day. And you're all, almost in, as well painting on those um, those hospital windows and walls again as a child with those big gilded shapes that, that tie nicely into when Matisse yeah, actually so. developed them. I hadn't so really thought of that. Yeah, it's kind of uh, almost performative in that respect, which yeah. is nice. Yeah. Um, thanks for coming in and chatting with us, with us today about this with You're me. You're so welcome. Um, so your show, how long is it up in Alberton for? It's up until the 26th of July, but I think they are wondering if they can extend it a little bit into August. So okay. we're going to hopefully that might happen because they look so they look so at home in there. It'd be a shame to. And that's Alberton's at um, 100 Mount Albert Road, isn't it? Yeah. It's worth going and checking out. It's a beautiful old house full of intriguing things. Um, they shot quite a few um, scenes from the luminaries there if you're watching that at the moment on Netflix. And Emma's got her beautiful series The Impossible Garden up on display which is part of the Auckland Photography Festival. So get along um, and if you want to check out more of Emma's work jump onto emmabass.co.nz and you'll be able to find everything you want there. This podcast was brought to you with the help of Liquid Studios. You're listening to an Artache podcast. Creative content from Artache.com.